was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are Stradivarius. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, episode number 15. This is the unparalleled podcast powered by a permanent passion to ponder and pontificate on the plethora of portrayals of the prominent, proficient, provocateur, James Bond 007. And that one really was testing my microphone pop filter to the max there. As always, we appreciate both your company here in the cubbyhole and your unwavering support of our Bond film reviews thus far. If you haven't already, do consider giving us a like and follow on Facebook and Instagram, where you can find us under our full show title, or on Twitter, where we have the shorter handle of more cubby, M-O-O-R-E-C-U-B-B-Y. And whichever podcasting platform you use, we're always grateful for a review in order to expand our reach into the lovely Bond community and beyond. Uh, a lot of love for the Partridge impression in the latest reviews, so do keep that coming. Do remember, you can also get in contact with us via email, rogerwarscubbyhole at gmail.com. If you'd like to share any of your Bond stories, observations, questions, pretty much any topic we may have discussed already or a new topic you think we should discuss in future, do get in contact and you'll have a chance to feature in our Q branch, i.e. the questions branch segment. Now, in our previous episode, we discussed Bond number 14 of You to a Kill, where we examined an aging Bond take on the microchip maniac Max Zorin. We concluded it was perhaps a rare misfire for the franchise in terms of lacking a clear direction and tone, but not a complete disaster. It was kind of the film equivalent of sharing a quiche with Stacey Sutton rather than sharing a car wash with Mayday. Of course, we are sad to say goodbye to Roger Moore, but he will stay with us as the everlasting spiritual owner of our cubbyhole, Roger Moore's cubbyhole. We move forward into a new era for the Bond films this week, where we'll be looking at Timothy Dalton in his first and penultimate role as Bond in The Living Daylights, Bond number 15. So have we set our hopes up way too high? Let's find out with the usual hosting team. Firstly, it's the man who is very theatrical, but do forgive him. It's a hangover from his Cambridge days. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? I'm very good, uh, Martin. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to get onto the Dalton double. I, I have a lot of affection for these two films. Uh, just going back to last week, I was also very happy that mine and Phil's very sort of tangential chat about Beamish managed to make the final edit. So many uh, great things that didn't. Us talking about the very questionable choice of bomber jacket and tracksuit outfits that uh, Bond and Sir Godfrey Tibbet used to sneak around Zorin's stud farm. And of course, Herr Dr. Mortner's strange decision to keep sticks of Acme Dynamite in a fridge on a blimp. All of that was gone, but our amazing chat about Beamish stayed in. I'm very, very pleased about that. It's only the best stuff for this podcast. Of course, we also forgot the, the Roger Moore groaning there were several incidents of groans in that film. Yeah, what, what was our final tally? I think there were five official groans, i.e. the octopusy R theme tune groan. But uh, Phil, I think you, you sort of counted a lot more if you also include tangential groans. 
Well, I'm not sure what the, the final tally would have been. I, I actually counted seven in the end, so I don't know if that was... But I was counted based on the octopusy style ground, so I don't know whether I sort of... Maybe I heard it by accident, maybe. Well, well, there you go. If you were counting along, Cubbies, uh, the correct answer is either five or seven. Yeah, unfortunately, we won't be hearing that groan for the, the future films. I think it would be fun if they just added it in randomly into one of the battles, like a bad guy as Roger Moore's groan. Well, there is, of course, that very famous sound effect. <coughs> it's in every single action film ever. So, yeah, maybe the Bond films should have adopted the Roger Moore groan as their version. I think they should, and it should expand into wider cinema. Of course, one thing we didn't say about A View to a Kill is that it has sense it's 20 years ahead of its time in that it invents the Jerry Action film genre, as it's now called. You know, all those Liam Neeson, Taken-inspired films, but also looking at the Expendables movies and Arnie's sort of latter-day works. Pretty much all can trace their origins back to Roger Moore and A View to a Kill, so maybe we, we underestimated it. Indeed, that's why our cubbyhole is Roger Moore's cubbyhole, the one and only. And secondly, it's the man who's not a fool. He knows that men's greatest achievements were the battering ram and gunpowder. It's Phil. How are you? Well, I guess also the, the car, Phil. How are you? Yes, very well, thanks, Martin. Yes, I would agree that the car is probably the greatest invention of them all. Once again, I know I mention this every week, but a huge thanks to everybody that's been getting involved and uh, commenting, liking, and joining us in conversation on social media. Just on Facebook, thank you to Davy Southey, to Tom Price, Laurie Brown, Daniel Rodriguez, Lorenzo Granger, Shamir Ravji. Thank you to Chris Hicks as well, um, who was making an interesting suggestion about, obviously last week we mentioned what we wanted our uh, listenership to be called. So there was an interesting debate about um, whether it should stay as the Cubbies. And then just really quickly on Twitter as well. Thank you to Billy Jenkins, Bernard Minot, Rushford Bryan, Morgan W., James Bond Screenshot Quiz, Davis McArdle, Dash the Poets, Harry Mowat, Phil Edwards, at Problem Eliminator, Lennox Goldbranson, at Becker, Sharp Pictures, Martin Wiley, SS Boa 66, Gary Kay, Benjamin Carp, Robert Fulton, and at Chris. Thank you to everybody for your follows and your comments. Obviously, there's a lot more content that's been on Twitter as well. So if you do want to um, have your name read out, just give us a mention on Twitter. Also, um, a, a surefire way of getting on the show is sending, obviously, a really good question into the Q branch. So uh, also consider doing that as well. Uh, just to pick you up on one thing there, Phil, I think it was um, the, uh, the suggestion that uh, our followers changed their name, perhaps, from the Cubbies. I think the alternative suggestion was the Broccoli Heads. Now, obviously, we'll leave it up to you, the listenership, to decide whether you'd sooner be the Cubbies or the Broccolis. I don't know. To me, the Broccoli Heads kind of sounds like a 70s teddy boy band that never got as big as the Bay City Rollers, but, but perhaps I'm uh, being harsh on that. Yeah, I thought it sounded like a sort of boxing injury. You know, you get like cauliflower ear. I thought Broccoli Head was just where you got punched in the head too many times. Yeah, it could be one or the other. Of course, if, if everyone wants to be known as the Broccoli Heads, and, and we, call, we, you know, we then call ourselves Roger Moore's Cubby Hole and the Broccoli Heads, that could be all right. It, it has that sort of main band and backing band vibe to it. You know, I, I think the Cubbies is really good. Although we did get into a, not a bit of trouble, but we, we did inadvertently cross over into gay slang terms, apparently, when we were discussing uh, the Cubbies as a nickname. And we started talking about otters and bears, which, which obviously means something very different if uh, you're in the gay subculture. Okay, we'll go over to Adam and Alan for the film synopsis. Alan's secretary, Lynn, is not so keen on the Welsh ones, but I hope Alan is more favourable. So uh, over to you guys. 
Well, Alan's favourite's Roger Moore, so he probably won't be as keen, but uh, we'll see how we go. So, The Living Daylights, the 15th James Bond film, taking its title from the 14th and final James Bond book, Octopussy and The Living Daylights, the short story collection. It's the first performance in the role of 007 from Timothy Dalton, and it's the fourth of John Glenn's five films as director. And it's also the final in the series to be scored by the great John Barry. This is his last musical score for the Bond movies. So The Living Daylights is released in June 1987, so only one year before Pierce Brosnan's breakout performance in the action classic Tappin. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! The Living Daylights is made on a budget of $40 million and it goes on to gross $191.2 million worldwide. So it's not a mega hit um, in the spirit of Moonraker or the Connery movies, but it is a much bigger critical success than many of the previous films. The film critics really, really rated this one. But as always, let's find out if the man whose opinion matters rates it. It's Alan. Welsh Dragon Timothy Dalton's down the gun barrel. Bang! Blood dribbles down. M stupidly sets up his desk in the back of a plane. The double O's go paintballing in Gibraltar. Bond has a truck fight with a gatecrasher, then gets lucky on a bored trophy wife's luxury yacht. Cue the music by... Aha! Bond endures a classical concert with annoying stick-in-the-mud Saunders where he shoots sexy cellist Cara to stop her doing a JFK on defecting Soviet General Koskov. Koskov escapes thanks to a pipeline and two very large breasts, but Bond's hung up upon the sexy cellist. Whoever she was, it must have scared the living daylights out of her. Bond takes a very expensive taxpayer-funded hamper to Koskov at Britain's plushest safe house, but then Koskov's kidnapped by Necros, the fastest milkman in the West. Bond hooks up with the sexy cellist Kara and smuggles her into Vienna, blowing up a barn and damaging a priceless cello in the process. Why didn't you learn to play the violin? On a lovely date night, Bond has to sit through an opera, Kara's freaked out by a ghost train, and they cop off on a ferris wheel. But Stick in the Mud Saunders gets killed by Necros, the fastest balloon salesman in the West. Over in Tangiers, Bond roughs up KGB big dog Pushkin and his bird, fakes his assassination, and chats to Felix Leiter, who happens to be there for some reason. But Koskov kidnaps Bond and Kara and sends them to a Russian gulag in Afghanistan. They escape alongside dreamy Mujahideen Captain Akram Shah and learn that Koskov and mental Yankee arms dealer and waxwork enthusiast Whitaker are raking it in off diamonds, high-tech shooters and opium by the bagful. The sexy Mujahideen blow everything up, Bond nicks a plane full of drugs, sends Necros, the fastest drug lord in the West, out of a plane, he got the boots, and makes some evening plans. I know a great restaurant in Karachi, we can just make dinner. He tells Whitaker he blew up his drug plane, you burned up a half a billion bucks, and after a shootout, you've had your eight, I'll have my 80. Bond blows him up with a sexy keyring. He met his Waterloo. Big Dog Pushkin captures Koskov, put him on the next plane to Moscow, in the diplomatic bag. And Bond treats Kara to his magic penis after having to sit through yet another bloody concert. You didn't think I'd miss this performance, did you? The end. Thanks a lot, Adam and Alan. Of course, we are getting ever closer to that performance of Taffin by Pierce Brosnan. Of course, wouldn't ha- I guess it wouldn't happen if Brosnan had taken the role of Bond, which was all set to happen 
before his contract with Remington Steel was renewed on the last day. So we get Dalton instead for this film, The Living Daylights. I mean, we'll always love Roger Moore, of course we will, but we mentioned in our previous episode that it was looking a bit tired, wasn't it, the, the Bond franchise? It needed a fresh face, some reinvigoration for the series, and I think it certainly gets that with Timothy Dalton. A much more serious tone, someone more akin to Shakespearean performances, and you can kind of see that in his uh, style. Of course, he actively wanted to go back to the novel version that Fleming had written. So what did we reckon, Phil? I know that you're a great admirer of uh, Dalton in the Bond series. What did we think to The Living Daylights? Yeah, I, I really enjoy this film. It's one of my, my very favourites of the entire series, principally because of the fact that, as, as we said, kind of Roger Moore towards the end, it was starting to look a little bit tired. And I think the, the series needed to move on, needed to almost reinvent itself in a way. And Dalton did that perfectly because he was the opposite of, of Roger Moore in many respects. He was much more capable of doing the physical sequences. He was much more capable of doing, you know, the action as well. But he also had that mix. He was still very charming and still had that that blend. So I think that in many respects, I think that Dal- Timothy Dalton is, is quite unfortunate in the fact that he only got two films to show his, his abilities. I think he deserved to do more. And obviously there are a number of reasons behind that principally the, where there was also the legal dispute in the early 90s, which delayed the series for several years. But no, I, I think that Dalton is probably the most underrated Bond actor of them all, personally. I, I really rate this film highly. I think it's absolutely, as mine said, it's the creative shot in the arm the series really needed. And what's brilliant is the story to this, I think, is absolutely fabulous. It's one of the best that, um, you know, certainly Richard Maybaum was involved in writing. It's so atmospheric and rich and complex, the actual narrative of this one. And I think that comes from the fact that the story kind of has one foot in the past and one foot in the future. On the one hand, certainly the first half of the film, it's very much like a classic Cold War thriller. It's, it's kind of harkening back almost to From Russia With Love and has the spirit almost of a John le Carre or a Graham Greene um, spy story. You know, we, we have this idea of defections of political double-crossers of sort of innocents who get caught up in this very sinister spy game. But also as we move into the second hour of the film and go into the Middle East, we're kind of touching upon the proxy wars and fought over commodities that um, would become, I guess, the geopolitical crucible for Russia and the USA moving beyond the Cold War and beyond the USSR. And obviously bringing in Whitaker, who is this rogue American arms dealer, solidifies that. And so in terms of a film that represents where geopolitics was heading at the time and how the spy game reacts to that, as well as the traditions of the espionage genre. And it it just all creates the perfect introductory vehicle to Timothy Dalton, who, like Phil says, still kind of remains the most underrated Bond outside of fans of the series. I think fans love Dalton. But yeah, it's, it's just, even though he only gets two, I think he gets a really great two. Yeah, so I guess with this performance, we get much less of the the humour that we would associate with the Roger Moore Bond. Where do we stand on the humour? I'd say that Dalton is not particularly good at delivering the comedy one-liners that they still sneak into the, the script in some of the places. But I think I'd say overall in terms of fitting it into the storyline, we get much more kind of situational comedy, humorous moments based on what's happening in the scene. So, for example, when uh, Koskov's being shot through the pipeline and uh, Bond says that it's the first time anyone's done that. And then, yeah, where they're in the Russian base and Kara says they're free and Dalton says we're in the middle of a Russian air base in Afghanistan. 
So I, I did quite like the fact that we got more situational comedy, but maybe, I mean, I guess the screenwriters did take some liberties and they added some Roger Moore humor in there that maybe wasn't so appropriate, like the car chase on the ice. So worked in some places, maybe not so good in others. What did we reckon? To be honest, I, I don't think that Dalton uses the comedy in a, in a bad way. I, th- I think he still does his best with what's there. And you kind of, you're not expecting him to do the humour anyway, so you kind of forgive him for that side anyway. When you look at Dalton's portrayal as Bond, he is very much, he is angry through a lot of this film, and that's kind of his portrayal. I think it's best displayed when it's the death of Saunders, you know, that rage that he it just seems to exhume when it's, you know, Bond is... Is so, and we'll see that in *License to Kill* as well. That anger and that sort of hatred that he has for the henchmen and the villains, and you know, it's it's that disdain. So, I'd say that obviously, I, I think they put the comedy elements in for light relief, and I personally, I think they they still work okay. It's it's a serious film, and then there are elements of light humor peppered throughout to ease certain moments. I think. Yeah, it's true. I think the humour in this manifests itself kind of more in line with the charm, and I guess the sort of sardonic wit that uh, Dalton brings to the role when he does have the one-liners for example those in the car chase uh, which you're quite right Martin it does feel a little bit like it's in the wrong film that sequence it's a hang-up from you know the the bigger sort of more gadget-laden Bond movies Uh, but when he's sort of saying random one-liners there to Cara when she's saying oh what happened to that car and he's like oh salt corrosion it's it's sort of quite patronising and, and it's it's him being sort of quite wearily funny with her. And that fits his his overall interpretation of Barol. He's an incredibly morose and world-weary Bond. You get the sense that this is a James Bond who is now embodying the fact that he's been an agent for a long time, he's seen a lot, and he is getting jaded with his role in the world as a double-O agent and the fact that his life is so often on the line. At the end of that scene where um, Koskov escapes through the pipeline, he says to Saunders, oh, file your report, you know, if M fires me, I'll thank him for it. He anticipates everything really that Daniel Craig's been celebrated for in his films in terms of bringing a sort of psychological edge and a realism. But at the same time, he brings a sense of, of being very cultured and of being a proper connoisseur again. He sits through quite a lot of concerts in this. He goes to classical music. He takes Cara to the opera. He seems to know lots of languages as well in this, you know, he knows a little bit of Afghan. He seems to have a rudimentary understanding of Russian. And so he is very much playing Bond as he is after he's had a fairly long, certainly longer than average career as a double O agent, and is now partially fed up with the whole thing. And Dalton plays that absolutely splendidly. Well, yeah, he's so good at languages that he's created his own. Apparently, there is no such language as Afghan. So he's just, uh, he's just making an, a new one up for Kara. Very romantic. He is very serious in the film, but the the sweetness that we get, the tender moments with Cara Malovi were one of my highlights for this film. Kind of a new James Bond woman, I feel, with Mariam Darbo's portrayal. She doesn't really fit into the categories that we've seen before. It's a nice balance, a nice mixture of the, the Bond women. And also kind of good that she was a Bond fan herself. So we're getting to the stage now of the Bond franchise where the actors in the films are massive fans of Bond and we can see that also with Jeroen Crevet. So uh, you can see that they're having fun with the roles, but also moulding them into slightly different, or taking them into slightly different directions. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is uh, Cara Milovi is a very different kind of a Bond woman, but be a, a, a different manifestation of what a strong female character is. She's essentially a civilian, and yet she is an extraordinary civilian. She's a leading classical musician. And so she's incredibly sophisticated and cultured. And she, you know, she's at the top or getting to the top of her profession, which is a very difficult one. And, and it's almost a bit of a stretch when towards the end she ends up horse riding and flying planes and, you know, kind of seizing machine guns and charging off into the distance. But we get away with it because the character has been so well drawn. And like we say, the relationship that she has with Bond in this is, is really great. I think one of the best, probably the best we've seen since The Spy Who Loved Me. And like in that film, there's effectively only one female character who bonds with for the entire film. And of course, people have sort of talked about this as a response to the AIDS crisis of the 1980s. Being sexually promiscuous was now being very frowned upon, obviously, as a health hazard. But what it does mean is that Bond spends the whole film effectively with one female character. And it means that they build a very tender and complex relationship. Bond kind of goes from just using her and almost seeing her as a bit of a nuisance who he has to have along with him to get information from, to actually sort of harboring feelings for her. When you look at that date sequence, and of course the, the classical concert they go to once they reach Vienna in Austria, you can almost see that relationship blossoming. He is just naturally feeling for someone who is incredibly attractive and whom perhaps he could see as maybe being a longer-term match for himself, I don't know. But there's a real tenderness and a sweetness to that almost growing romance between the two of them. Particularly, we see that in the funfair area. Uh, you can't really imagine any other Bond actor doing that scene, I don't think. You couldn't, I'm not sure whether you could imagine Sean Connery and some dodgems. Well, particularly in the scene where um, Bond wins a cuddly toy for her as well, you couldn't really imagine any of the other actors doing that. And she picks that massive, that quite creepy looking elephant, actually, but obviously that's, uh, that's meant for a, a sweet little moment between the two of them. But no, I, I, do, I do enjoy that funfair scene. It builds to a moment of sadness as well, obviously, where we then see that um, Bond leaves Cara to look at the souvenirs and, and obviously he meets with Saunders in the cafe. And that is a really, really brutal scene. You're right, the real power of that scene comes from the fact that it then culminates with the murder of Saunders. And Dalton's reaction to that is absolutely incredible. It's one of his best scenes in the film. Just the act of like crushing a balloon in his bare hands. It's not like odd job with the golf ball or a gabinda with the dice. And yet it has even more power. And the fact that at the end he is so enraged, he just almost unthinkingly pulls his gun on a small child who's just got a couple of balloons. And the way that that scene brilliantly caps off the whole sequence is in the, his change of attitude to Cara at that point. He'd been very sweet and tender to her. And then at the end of the scene, he is very short with her and he is pretty cross with her. And he's saying, right, pack your bags, we're leaving immediately. I love the tension of that scene where you think that maybe Saunders is going to be taken out by Necros while Bond is necking with Kara. But then obviously that doesn't happen and we get the, the more impactful death later. Uh, Bond doesn't seem to have a great record with kids, does he? Like pushing one off of the boat, pulling a gun on one. Going back a little bit as well, do we want to actually look at the very start of the film and obviously Timothy Dalton's introduction because it's quite an interesting way that John Glenn 
introduces him to the franchise, obviously we're, the audience is anticipating a new Bond. Um, I never actually knew this, but apparently the two other actors who were picked to play, I believe it's 002 and 004 for their paintball exercise, were deliberately chosen because they had a passing resemblance to Roger Moore and George Lazenby. Obviously there could have been any one of those three actors could have been the new Bond. So it was a little bit of trying to toy with the audience slightly. And I actually personally think that opening sequence is one of the very best of the entire franchise, just because of the way it's set up. What do you guys think? Do you think it's it's a really good one? So I think it's a great sequence as well. I think it's much more action-packed and stunt-packed. And it establishes the fact that the action credentials in this film are going to be better than we've seen. They're going to be much more physical. And of course, it makes a boon of Dalton blending into those action sequences much more than Roger Moore did. Uh, he did a lot more of his own stunts, I think, Dalton. And so there's less of that awkward blue screening in where it, it becomes very obvious that, you know, it's not Dalton doing everything. And also, I do wonder, we've talked a little bit about the Indiana Jones films in relation to the Bond films. This is going a little bit the other way in that that great truck sequence in Raiders of the Lost Ark when Indiana Jones has got his whip and he's holding onto it and he's being dragged along and then has to climb along the outside of the truck to then take it over. This sequence seems a very, very clear homage to that. So it is almost Bond saying our influences through the 80s have sort of surpassed us a little in the action stakes. So now we're going to be inspired by them. So yeah, I agree. I think it's a great opening sequence. It introduces Dalton as a more violent character as well, doesn't it? You certainly couldn't, obviously you couldn't imagine Siraj doing all of that uh, action on top of the Land Rover, but you certainly couldn't imagine him headbutting the driver either. Uh, so I think it's a nice refreshing tone and it sets us up nicely for Dalton's era. Although I wasn't sure about the beginning. I mean, M, where is his confidence coming in the double O section? He says that they, they can't fail. Well, well, who have we had? About 003, 009 have bought it in previous films. 004 here, who also dies. And incredibly, I think the worst one is 002, who doesn't get killed. He just lands in a tree and loses the exercise immediately. You beat me to the punch again, Martin. Yet yeah, 002, the most useless of all the 00 agents, straight away shot by a pink paintball, of all things. But yeah, also on M, like the fact that he's sort of got a whole desk in the back of that plane, and then as soon as the hatch opens, all his paperwork goes flying. And you think, oh, hang on, are they really important papers? Are they really the kind of documents that should be flying out of a plane and like dropping over Gibraltar? As we've talked about the scene just before the titles, should we talk about the sequence just after the titles, the whole sniper sequence and the defection of Koskov? Because I guess if the opening sequence establishes the action and the physical credentials of uh, Dalton in the role, this is very much the one that explores his much more nuanced and edgy way of playing the character. There's a really key line in it when um, him and Saunders leave the concert and uh, they're getting ready for the interval. And Dalton just says to him very tersely, turn the lights out and then sort of, you know, does his tuxedo in such a way that he's in total darkness. And it just sets up that scene brilliantly. It is a sequence which is full of shadows and darkness and people in confined spaces, whether it be the small rooms above the street or the car boot or, of course, the pipeline. But it's a great, as I say, sequence that, that harkens back to the great tradition of Cold War spy thrillers. Did you guys love that bit as well? I think it's a great sequence. I think you mentioned at the beginning, Adam, it harkens back to From Russia With Love. And that sequence reminded me of good old Karen Bay, night vision, shooting someone or not shooting them in, uh, in this case. But yeah, I really loved it. 
the fact that it's full of people keeping secrets as well, even people who are allies, you know, Saunders doesn't want to tell Bond what his plan to get Koskov out and into the West is. And similarly, Bond also has a plan to defect Koskov, which he won't tell Saunders what it is either. So even people on the same side are just keeping these secrets from each other. So, you know, it, it really does harken back to, as I say, a properly Le Carre-esque portrayal of, of, um, of spy action and the spy genre. Yeah, I love the setup of that scene as well. And it's, again, it's it's very much distancing itself from what's come before. And, you know, this idea that it's probably what actual real espionage would be closer to, you know, there would be more sort of investigating secrets and obviously probably trying to manage defections and things such as that. So I think there's probably much more of a real world grounding in this, certainly when compared to more of the Roger Moore films that, that have gone before it. There's a great professionalism in terms of Dalton as Bond uh, as well. You know, he's not being soft on the sniper until, of course, he learns who it is. He immediately shoves Koskov out of the car boot, saying, oh, that's the first place they'll look. He's, you know, absolutely fed up with the idiocy of people around him, and he is a complete diehard professional. I did like, I only kill professionals, a nice contrast to Connery and You Only Live Twice, that <laughs> those fishermen on the docks are not professional. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, Connery was uh, particularly trigger-happy in that film, wasn't he? I guess that is generally a, a sign of all the Bonds. Like, they, they generally don't kill people unless they themselves are in danger. But there's the lovely duality of that moment when Bond does spare Kara is, you know, is he just using that line, I only kill professionals as a front? He doesn't know for definite that this isn't a KGB assassin. So it is a very deliberate going against his orders. If he were truly the brutal, unfeeling, heartless killer that perhaps we fear he might be when, when Dalton's setting himself up, he would have, I guess, just shot her and not thought about it twice. And of course, it's, it's the fact that he doesn't do that, but something inside him says, no, I'd better keep her alive, actually, that ultimately creates the lead for him to discover what's really going on with Koskov and Whitaker. Yeah, so uh, talking of those two, shall we move on to the villains? Personally, I felt like the Koskov and Whitaker characters, perhaps underutilised and maybe a bit superfluous in the film, I think I preferred the henchman, the uber henchman, played by Andreas Wisniewski, very much in the mould of Red Grant, ruthless assassin, blonde hair, blue eyes, very muscular, takes out multiple targets and then comes unstuck when he finally faces off against Bond but I thought he was a really good character probably one of my favorites since Red Grant I'd say really efficient uses the uh, the Walkman wires although probably needs a larger playlist he only only plays one song doesn't he in in all of the murders for me there's one great scene in particular as they say Marty you've mentioned the Sony Walkman with the garot wire one of the greatest gadgets that any villain has ever had are the exploding milk bottles that used at the uh, MI6 safe house in the countryside. Obviously, it's a great effect to Im implicate that there's a gas leak. But just that ingenuity to have, you know, a, very, a really, really simple sort of front that he can use. Obviously, he plays the role of the milkman brilliantly. Also, we've got to note the myriad of different voices that he puts on. Necros as a character is a really brilliant setup, and the fact that he has his own, you know, allegiances. So it's interesting that he's kind of this third party killer that just so happens to be employed by Whitaker and Koskov is quite an interesting dynamic as well. 
I think to tie those two points together, that's very much where he is ahead of Red Grant in that he is a master of disguise, quite truly, and can blend himself through subterfuge into the, the situations he needs to get into. Red Grant is forced to stay in the shadows for most of From Rush With Love because he's too noticeable. He's too physically imposing. And the moment that he steps into a fake alias and tries to pretend to be Captain Nash... Bond immediately suspects that he's not and that something weird's going on. Necros pretty much manages to smuggle himself into any situation, to the extent, of course, that he gets the best fistfight in the film, which Bond isn't involved in. It's the one with the security guard in the kitchen, which is a much more violent and, and brutal and sort of bloodthirsty action sequence than we've seen. You know, the fact that boiling water's getting thrown around, people's faces are getting smashed onto hot grills and all the rest of it. And of course, everything watched over by our old friend Diana Riggs' uh, parrot. But it is an interesting thing that we mentioned from Russia with Love because it is actually a similar setup in terms of the villains. It's the same basic triumvirate in this film in that we have um, the former Russian who is now defected and is kind of a rogue agent out for themselves we have the sort of bigger boss villain who has all the money and all the power and is the sort of i guess megalomaniacal figure controlling everything and then of course we have the sort of blonde henchman who is incredibly physically fit i mean i i wanted max to start shouting attack two sensor rolls and then dalton just to walk past and say wrong bloody film there is no attack anymore i smashed it on the mountain um, just to talk about those other villains as well, let's let's sort of start, I guess, with Koskov. I, I guess it's it's interesting in that we talked about Julian Glover as Christatos in um, For Your Eyes Only, and the fact that we don't know who the villain of the piece is for quite a long time. And I think actually Jerome Crabbe does a really interesting job with this character in that we actually know that Koskov is rotten and is duplicitous much more early on in the film. Uh, And that means that he can have a bit more fun with the performance because we as the audience are prone to the fact that he's not who he says he is. And so I think Crabbe has real fun playing the slippery charm and duplicitousness of that role. Uh, And therefore, it's a slightly more enjoyable performance, perhaps, than Christatos. And you get to sort of share in the glee when various bits of their plan start coming together, when he thinks that Bond has fallen for his ruse and believes him and has assassinated Pushkin. And he has that little dance around the swimming pool. I told you the British, believe me, I told you. And so he might not be the most memorable or or the most dynamic of villains and certainly one of the few main villains who who ends up alive at the end of it. He's just carted off to prison. But I do enjoy that performance still. I I think there's a lot of fun that uh, Crabbe has with it. Yeah, I think Crabbe does lend a lot to the the role of Costco. I think the only thing for me is his accent perhaps slips a little bit at times. There are elements where it kind of slips between Russian and kind of South African at points. But uh, I think we can forgive him for that. The other actor that I really enjoy in this film is actually Joe Don Baker as Whittaker. Quite interesting the way that he plays Whittaker as this sort of maniacal, not necessarily sort of megalomaniac, he's more sort of an arms dealer that's that's wanting his own empire. So he almost has his Napoleon complex as we see with his lair when Pushkin first meets him and he's got all these waxworks in his own image. So it's almost kind of this this sense that Joe Don Baker is playing Whittaker as this kind of angered character where he sort of he wants to be seen as this sort of brilliant tactical genius who is able to kind of control armies and things like that and be able to have his own arms race but it's kind of he's not really reached the heights he wants to it's a really good character this in that it's an example of real world megalomania he is you know a very believable 
bombastic American arms dealer, the type who we would, of course, go on to wreak mayhem in the Middle East. And obviously, we won't go into that because it becomes very complex very quickly. But he's very much the type of crazed, you know, thinking of himself as this kind of surgeon of civilization, which is why he has those various military leaders and warlords in his house as waxworks. And Joe Don Baker's a fabulous character actor. He is given just enough in the few scenes that he's in to get across everything you need to, to really layer up that character. We have the gluttony of him sat there in Tangiers eating a lobster and, you know, just crushing all the claws, you know, with his bare hands. Uh, and of course, in that, that final fight sequence between Bond and Whittaker, very pointedly, it's an anti-gadget sequence. It's Whittaker who suddenly has all the high-tech firepower. He's got this cannon in there. He has all the weapons and the shields that he needs. But Bond with just a small gun and, you know, a fairly reserved gadget by Q standards is able to defeat him. He's outgunned, but he still finds a way to win. Can I just say as well, the bit I love about that final sequence between Whittaker and Bond is the fact that he's got that massive remote control with all those buttons and yet he knows instinctively what each one does. It'd take me 15 minutes to work out which one the cannon was, which one opened all the drawers. Can you imagine if that also controls, well it does also control the stereo. If you're thinking, yeah, I just want to listen to Radio 4 tonight and then you press the wrong button and blow off the house to pieces. It's quite a flawed idea, I think. It's also a rare moment of Bond being a little bit of an idiot in that fight sequence when he keeps shooting at Whittaker's face despite the fact that it's covered by this blast shield, which doesn't cover any of the rest of Whittaker's rather large and ample body. I mean, I hate to keep mentioning it, but the laser gun from Moonraker, where was it in Whittaker's arsenal of, uh, of guns? It'd have been pretty useful um, earlier on in the big airstrip action sequence with the Mujahideen as well, if you'd have just handed to Akram Shah, here's something that might help you out against this vastly superior force. Uh, while we're on that, that big airstrip action sequence in Afghanistan, um, it, it is worth saying that, that this is, I think, one of the great epic action sequences in the series. Bond getting into the back of the van with all the opium and planting the plastic explosive. There's no dialogue at all. It just builds and builds and builds to the point where Bond is discovered and then all hell breaks loose. So it's a great sort of build-up and release moment. Yeah, say so I really enjoyed the part where Bond is kind of hiding in the truck and he's got the, the bomb hidden inside one of the, uh, the opium bags. Real tension there whether he's going to get found out because, of course, Necros is uh, in the back of the truck as well. Uh, then, of course, it all kicks off with the explosions that are quite good. Maybe a bit cartoonish, I'd say, in the sense that we get Necros and Koskov hiding behind a truck for quite a while before anything really happens. For me, I'd say the plane sequence is more impressive. I spoke last time, or a few episodes ago, Octopussy. I really enjoyed the, the final plane sequence. But this one, I'd say, is perhaps even better. I think really impressive stunt work of them actually out of the back of a plane, clinging on. And I think a couple of times when they were doing the takes, some of them fell off and obviously they were wearing parachutes. They're not Jaws. They're not going to survive that, uh, that fall. There's no convenient Afghan circus uh, somewhere below which is going to cushion the fall. Uh, Necros, of course, when he does uh, fall from the plane, falls with more than just um, a parachute. He also takes Bond's shoe with him. He holds on to that shoe for an awful lot of the way down. It's the, one of the few moments where I thought, that's very bizarre. Why, why is he still holding that shoe? It's, it's not going to help him. But you're right, Martin, that is another great aerial action sequence. And you sense the real danger of the stunt work and the difficulty of it as well. The fact that 
cargo nets are difficult to hold on to at the best of times, holding on to one in midair with the wind smashing around you while these very large bags of opium are hitting you in the face. It must have been an absolute nightmare to film. And, you know, it is the final fight sequence that both of those characters deserve. It contrasts brilliantly to the fight at the end of A View to a Kill on the Golden Gate Bridge when you're almost so high up and in such a confined space. And Bond is, and, and Zorin, of course, aren't great fighters, either of them at this point, that the action comes off as a little bit weak. In this one, that mistake is avoided completely. Uh, yeah, so we, we've spoken about some of the, or the, the villain characters. How about the new head of the KGB, Pushkin? For me, I think a really good performance by John Rhys-Davis, Gimli himself, or Salah from uh, Indiana Jones. He does a really good job. I really like Walter Gattel in previous incarnations and of course he was too ill for this film so he just plays a short cameo at the end but i didn't want to see walter gattel pushed around by dalton in that bedroom scene uh, so i think it's good that we get a new character working together in this film when dalton discovers the uh, the actual plan it's kind of it's interesting how jonathan reese davis plays the role of pushkin to an extent he's not really intimidated by bond obviously you know he's probably used to kind of a softer bond, let's say. But, you know, I think that Jonathan Rhys-Davis plays it really well. I think it's a really developed character and I think there's a great interplay between Bond and Pushkin throughout the film. And also with Pushkin and Whitaker as well, there's a great scene in Tangiers where Pushkin meets with Whitaker and he almost does a little dance when he when he starts to question Whitaker. He sort of, sort of does this little this little turn as if he's doing like a little excitable dance. And you know, and I think that the payoff as well, the fact that obviously Bond and Pushkin then work together to fake his death, and obviously nobody but Bond and Pushkin know, you know, not even Pushkin's girlfriend knows that he's been he hasn't actually been shot. You know, and the, the fact that Bond also uses his girlfriend quite gratuitously in a way to kind of lead him in and then to lead his bodyguard in. Yeah, I think John Rhys-Davis is one of our great underrated um, screen actors. He's got real presence and authority. You absolutely believe that he is the head of the KGB. That scene in the hotel room where um, Bond and Pushkin finally come face to face, I think this is the best scene in the film. I think if you want one single scene in both Dalton films, which really shows you what his Bond was about, I think it's this one. Because both Pushkin and um, his uh, lady friend are absolutely terrified of Dalton in this. Just those moments when, you know, he's, he's taken out the guard and he sends the girlfriend flying into the bathroom and then just points the gun back at Pushkin, silence her on and says, on your knees. Pushkin thinks he's dead at this moment. And it's the first time for a while that we've seen Bond as a genuine killer who people on other sides of the spy world are genuinely frightened of. And yet... He then obviously turns it round and says, if I believe Koskov, we wouldn't be talking. So he's still smart enough and intelligent enough to know that all of this brutality is to get him the information he wants. Get in the bathroom and lock the door. Stay where you are. Get down on your knees. Put your hands behind your back. You are professional. You do not kill without reason. Two of our men are dead. Koskov's named you. Now why should I disobey my orders? I am in the dark as much as you are. It is a question of trust. Who do you believe? Koskov? Or me? If I trusted Koskov, we wouldn't be talking. 
as long as you're alive, we'll never know what he's up to. Then I must die. We'll move on now to the next segment, which is the cars and gadgets. So Bond himself tells us that he's fitted some optional extras. So here's Phil to tell us about those. Can you swim? Yes, absolutely, Martin. Um, for the first time in 18 years, so after 18-year departure, Aston Martin returned to the franchise with a triumphant um, return, this time with the V8 Vantage. Now, this was their kind of supercar, really. Now, interestingly enough, we see in the film there's actually two different versions of the same car. So in the early stages, when it's the summertime when Bond is driving to the MI6 safe houses in the Volante, when Q is then winterizing, as he puts it, the V8, it then becomes the V8 Vantage. So this is the hard top version of the car. So Bond's V8 Vantage gets a wide range of gadgets, including the head-up display, the front rockets that are used to destroy the trailer, radio frequency jammer so that he can listen into the police radio, bulletproof screens at the back, the outrigger, which is used in the ice chase scene. So they're the kind of main gadgets that Bond uses during his chase sequence, getting out of Bratislava. Um, Instantly enough, though, this became pivotal for Aston Martin moving forwards, because after The Living Daylights, there were only two films where an Aston Martin doesn't feature. And Adam and Martin, bonus points, if you can tell me which films they are, We've also kind of touched on it as well, but the police and Pushkin's bodyguards had to rely on Larder 1500s. Instantly, they would have very much struggled to keep up with the Aston Martin, which had a top speed of 170 miles an hour. The Larders would have struggled to have hit 80, really. That's, that's kind of their limits. Bond is also seen in Bratislava and Vienna driving around an Audi 200 C3, so obviously helps Koskov to escape. And later on in the film, he uses an Audi 200 Advance while he's in Tangiers. So that was the estate model he uses. If you're quite eagle-eyed, you'll see that when he pulls up outside the embassy, he accidentally runs an extra over. That was because they didn't actually get out of the way in time. So you'll hear him beat the horn and then knock into him as he's crossing the road. So that's a really, really quick run through the cars. Just to mention a few of the gadgets as well. We've already touched upon Necros's exploding milk bottles, obviously one of the best villains gadgets that we've ever seen, and also his Sony Walkman that have the garrot wire and the explosive timer as well. We see that Phillips have got a tie-in deal, um, and we see their key ring finder as a prominent weapon throughout the film, so it's used in the Air Force Base to stun the guards when they're trying to lock Bond and Kara in the cells. It's also used at the end of the film to kill Whitaker because the explosive device is used on the statue of Napoleon. Instant also that Q has built in the key that opens 90% of the world's locks. You kind of wonder what the extra 10% would be that it struggled to do. And of course, we get a little uh, nod to kind of popular culture at the time with the um, the quip about the ghetto blaster. Obviously, the large stereo that at the time in the 80s and kind of early 90s was um, was kind of held on people's shoulders as they listened to it. I think it was Prince Charles, wasn't it, who set that ghetto blaster going on the and they used the actual take from uh, from when he did it. 
And was it uh, Princess Diana at the time who smashed a, a breakable glass over his head, um, presumably as, as a very real punishment for his dalliances? Yeah, I get the feeling she didn't realise it was a breakable glass. I think she probably hoped it was real. It's also a rare scene in Q Branch of uh, our new Miss Moneypenny, played by Caroline Bliss, actually proving herself to be quite useful and resourceful. Like, she's managed to track down Cara Milovi um, in a very short space of time after Bond asks her to. She then completely blows it by inviting him back to her place to listen to some Barry Manilow. Yeah, I'd say, I think it's a good idea that they had a new Money Penny. I'm not sure it would have worked with Lois Maxwell as much as we like her as stout as she was in those uh, those last few films, Adam. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. Okay, I've already apologised for that. So I'll head over now to Adam, who's uh, going to take a look at the similarities and differences between the film and the short story. So it's by the book 007. Why don't you appoint yourself the manual? You should be able to shoot through that in a couple of hours. Just took a few seconds, Q. Thank you very much, Martin. So this is an adaptation of a single short story titled The Living Daylights, uh, which comes from the final posthumously published collection of shorts, which is itself called Octopussy and The Living Daylights. And this is a very faithful adaptation of pretty much the entire sequence after uh, the opening credits to the film, in which we have the defection of an agent and Bond having to go up against an enemy sniper. In the short story, however, it, it's Agent 272, as opposed to Georgi Koskov, who is attempting to defect from East to West Berlin rather than Bratislava, which is our setting in the film. The KGB assassin is known only as Trigger, I think it was Trigger Finger was the initial title of the short story before it was changed. And as in the film, Bond is taking a position in a hotel over no man's land. He's there actually for three nights in the short story. It doesn't take place over a single evening as it does in the film, during which time there's a nearby uh, building in which a female orchestra is rehearsing on each of the three nights. And each evening, uh, Bond indeed notices the fact that there is a rather attractive blonde female cellist. And of course, on the third night, as Agent 272 in the book makes his bid for freedom, Bond realises from the upper window that it is indeed the cellist who is the sniper, not uh, the girlfriend of the defector, as in the film, but genuinely the KGB assassin Trigger, whom Bond chooses to spare simply because he can't be bothered at this late stage of his career to uh, eliminate uh, a woman whom he has sort of developed um, an attraction to. And just like in the film, he hopes that um, for this reason that M will strip him of his double O number and his license to kill. It's an ending which is incredibly morose and which um, questions the psychology of Bond as this um, agent of death, as this killing machine. In the short story, he's um, accompanied not by Saunders, but by a Captain Sender. But it's pretty much the same character as Saunders. He's still the officious sort of paper-pushing stick in the mud who will, you know, threaten to report Bond for disobeying his orders. Uh, a couple of interesting things going on in the translation here. Um, in terms of that short story, it actually takes inspiration from a couple of real events. There were actually two of the prisoners who took part in the mass escape from Kolditz prison during World War II actually made it out of Nazi Germany by using the noise of a rehearsing orchestra in order to escape to freedom. And actually, um, Fleming's sister Amaryllis was herself a cellist, and so that's why Fleming puts a cellist into this short story. It's interesting that we also get in the film this reference to Schmier Spionum, Death to Spies, because, of course, the abbreviation of that is Smirsch, who are Fleming's sort of fictionalised version of the KGB. 
this was going to be an origin story. This was going to be Dalton playing him as if he had just become a double O, something that the filmmakers ultimately do accomplish with Daniel Craig in Casino Royale. And so that's kind of where the idea of using Smirsch comes from, because they are in the earliest of Fleming stories. The other thing I guess to say is that in terms of Dalton's portrayal of Bond, this is the closest of all of the actors to the Bond as Fleming wrote it. Dalton has himself talked about going back to the books and basing his character entirely on what Fleming wrote. He is, as we've said, embodying the world weariness and the disillusionment of a late career 007, which is very much in the fabric of Fleming's short story. For me, probably his best short story, so great that they adapted it fairly faithfully. Okay, so now we move to a new segment, which is called Now I Know You. Although you don't have to do it in the JW voice if you don't want to. Now I know you. Oh, no. You're that secret agent. That English secret agent from England. This segment is going to look at some of the areas of the film that call back to other areas of previous James Bond films. So I thought maybe I'd, uh, I'd give Adam and Phil a list of some of the callbacks and maybe we can just discuss some of your favourites and some of the ones that maybe didn't work. Firstly, we've mentioned that this one is more of a Cold War thriller, certainly at the beginning. So there are those links to From Russia With Love and of course the main henchman, Necros, very much reminiscent of Red Grant in his appearance and his methods of murder. Also, another interesting one I thought was in the character of Saunders, where he specifically calls Bond old man, and then Bond calls him an old man. I thought that was a nice little reference back to Red Grant on the train. And I know we said that Red Grant may be not so successful when he's pretending to be Nash, uh, but maybe we should give him more credit because he was speaking in a way that agents do seem to speak to each other in, uh, in this film. Also, several callbacks to For Your Eyes Only. Uh, we get the horse and cart, we get some rock climbing, and of course we get Max the parrot. The horrors that he's seen, just, uh, just horrible to think about, aren't they? And then also we could do a very small little callback to Goldfinger with the laser shearing off the top of the car. That's very reminiscent of Bond taking out Tilly Masterson's car and coming up with a ridiculous excuse of why the car is destroyed. And then also we could say that uh, in terms of the whole plot, it's very similar to Octopussy. We see some double O's at the beginning. Uh, we get a rogue Russian general. We get another villain helping that general. We get some smuggling activities. We get Bond, uh, Bond's ally brutally murdered and a plane sequence at the end. So very similar in terms of the overall plot to Octopussy. So uh, those are the main ones that I picked out. Uh, I don't know, Adam and Phil, what were your favorites amongst those? Uh, yeah, I think that's a pretty good roundup. Um, I, I do particularly think it is uh, pertinent that um, there is a lot of For Your Eyes Only and Octopussy um, in this film. Of course, we were, were very complimentary of those films, and we were sort of hinting the fact that a lot of the story elements and the way that those films sort of veered off from what we'd seen perhaps in The Spy You Love Me and Moonraker were very much setting the foundations for the kinds of story and the kind of atmosphere that the Bond series was going to be going with in the future. Uh, and yeah, great to see a lot of From Russia With Love in there. It's, I guess it's key that they never remake like Diamonds Are Forever, you know, or, or The Man With The Golden Gun. They, they never seem to have too much of those in. It's always the slightly better, more interesting Bond films that they go back to, um, you know, much more frequently. Where could we fit in a bomb surprise in this film? I'm not sure whether it's possible. It looked like um, Whitaker might have been having one after he'd finished that lobster in Tangiers. 
is that at the very end where it's back at the conservatoire. But, uh, but no, I'd agree, Matt. I think there's some great callbacks in this. One little callback I noticed as well was um, it's kind of a little mention back, obviously, with the Aston Martin chase. obviously the bulletproof screen where Dalton makes the little quip about it's amazing what this modern safety glass can do. And obviously that was a little quip back to the kind of the DB5 with the bulletproof plate that comes up and obviously protects Bond and Tilly at that time. So again, a lot of callbacks to that iconic Aston Martin in the the Goldfinger film and I think they were trying to progress that on to a new audience okay let's move over now to the questions from you our cubbies our dear cubbies what do we have today Phil answer my questions quietly but clearly yeah so just a couple of quick fire ones today so this one goes out to everyone so what Bond film or which Bond film are you always in the mood to watch so which one are you always happy to kind of stick on if it's uh, you know a quiet day or just one that you could put on um, recreationally what do you mean recreationally like this is just a job that we're going through them at the moment no I mean I mean recreationally it is it is kind of a drug isn't it we are doing this podcast to people listening I'm sure Bond is their drug uh, I, I've got to go Goldfinger I mentioned that maybe From Russia With Love has overtaken Goldfinger in, in terms of my favourite Bond film. But I'd say you've still got to be in the mood to watch From Russia With Love, whereas Goldfinger, I could watch that any day of the week. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I'd, I think I'd say The Spy Who Loved Me, actually. That's the one that I'd seen the most recently before uh, we went back into doing all of this series. And it's the one which I thought, because I'd seen it so relatively recently, I thought, well, I'll have this on with the director's commentary because, you know... I'd, yeah, I've just watched it. But then after about a minute, I turned the commentary off and just watched it again. So I think I'd have to say that one. It seems like no matter how many times I watch it, you know, I, I always enjoy it. Okay, very good. And the next question is, if you could build a theme park ride based on any of the Bond films, what would it be and why? Well, following on from Adam's previous answer of The Spy Who Loved Me, I think it's got to be something based on that. You've got the pyramids. You've got Jaws attacking you from various angles. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure. I think it would be quite difficult, actually, to make a James Bond theme park or a theme ride. But I, I wish someone would give it a go. I think you could either base one of those um, those sort of special roller coasters that just catapults you into the air and then drops you very suddenly. You could do that as the ejector seat theme park ride, either um, in tribute to Goldfinger's Aston Martin or indeed uh, the helicopter they eject from in Goldeneye. You could also have uh, General Orlov's runaway train from uh, Octopussy, where it's, it's a typical runaway train ride. But the entire way, you've got Stephen Burkoff sat next to you screaming. I think that would be the ultimate white-knuckle ride. See, if it was me, again, I'd do the Spy Who Loved Me, but I'd do the Lotus Esprit as a mix between a roller coaster and a water splash. You'd have the mix of the two where it's uh, part on-road, part in water. So I think that's what I'd try and aim for. If you wanted to recreate Diamonds Are Forever, just go to Las Vegas and have a, have a terrible time. <laughs> yeah, and lose all of your money and fall out of a hotel window into a swimming pool. That's the ultimate log flume. Could you actually have a water ride which is JW's Deep South Adventure? with a JW chasing you very ineptly in a, in a sort of broken down police car. That, that could be another option for, you know, for a bomb ride in the future. And the final question we've got this week, what do you feel is the worst line in a Bond film that isn't delivered by James Bond himself? So a line that's delivered badly by another actor. Oh, oh, a bad line delivery we're talking. Um, it, it, it's a tricky one, this one. 
I think in terms of strange line deliveries, of course, there is only one place to go to. It's, it's every word that Christopher Walken says in A View to a Kill. I'm happiest in the saddle. Yeah, I think I'd go View to a Kill as well, actually, with Stacey Sutton, where the, the plan is being explained, or she's working out the plan, and she, then she says, that's extremely dangerous. Completely See, unconvincing. Weird. <laughs> See, weirdly, I'd have gone for View to a Kill as well, but I'd have gone for the French taxi driver who went, oh no, my car! I think we should also name-check Diamonds Are Forever because there's a few in there. There's that random American mobster, the, the, the Antil mob guy who just pipes up, I got a brother! Or maybe a Plenty Hotel. Hi, I'm Plenty. Or when she's going out the window. Hey, you can't do this. I got friends in this town. I've got them Shady Tree, of course. Oh, God, yeah, Shady Tree. That Howard Hughes, Hughes fella, he's more difficult to spot than a virgin in a maternity ward. So that, that was our, uh, our Q branch for this week. So please do keep sending in your questions and suggestions and we will obviously ask them on the show. Yeah, so that was my favourite cue branch so far. I think some great questions there, so <laughs> do keep them coming. Uh, so before we finish the episode, we'll go to the quiz. So it's Phil, with some trepidation, let's go over to you and the quiz. Probably how big's a wing mirror on a BMW, I don't know. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! No, you'll be delighted to hear this one is not car-related at all, so there is no mention of cars at any point. So this week's quiz is called Aha! The Great Pretender. So interestingly enough, in The Living Daylights, this is probably the only Bond film where we actually get two bands playing the songs throughout the film. So as you're probably well aware, Aha! did the title song, um, The Living Daylights, but The Pretenders were also brought in to do some of the supporting songs included in the closing title. So this week, it's basically a penalty shootout style set of questions for you and for yourself martin and for adam all you have to do is tell me whether the song title that i read out was performed by a heart or the pretenders um adam you're going to start this week so again if we do go to sudden death it's best out of four each so we'll see how we go so adam your first song is where has everybody gone Okay, that must presumably be The Pretenders, because that's the one that is an aha. Correct. That was the one that was Necros was listening to on his Walkman. So that's one for Adam. Martin, your first one is The Sun Always Shines on TV. Let's go, aha. Correct. So that was one apiece. So on to question two. Adam, a little bit of an easy one again. Take on me. Probably the only one I know. That is aha. Yep, that's correct. So that's two for you, Adam. Martin, your second one is If There Was a Man. We were just completely guessing now. Let's go with the Pretenders. Correct. That was actually also in the Bond film. That was the song that plays out on the closing credits. So, Adam, your third one, I'll Stand By You. Uh, on the basis of it doesn't sound like a very aha title, I'll guess the Pretenders. Correct. It was the Pretenders. Martin, I, I, I fear this question may lead to um, some controversy because it's probably the easiest question of all time, but your title is The Living Daylights. Uh-huh. Yes, correct. So you're both at three out of three each onto the final round. So a little bit harder this time. Adam, your song title is Stay On These Roads. 
As a complete guess, let's try for aha. Correct, it was aha. So that's four out of four for Adam. Martin, you need to get this one, otherwise Adam will win it. So your song title is Brass in Pocket. The, the Pretenders? Correct, it was. So both four out of four. Votes. You did make this slightly easy, Phil, in which at every set of two questions, one was always aha and the other was always The Pretenders. Well, yes, true. I probably get, I thought I'd give you a bit of a fighting chance, otherwise I would have gotten told off by the fact that it was too difficult. Anyway, so that leads, you both got four out of four, so well done. So that leads us to the tiebreaker question. Now, I did at the very start say there wasn't going to be a car element to the questions. I never said anything about the tiebreaker. So as we've already mentioned, Aston Martin make their triumphant return with the V8 Vantage. All I want to know is, to the nearest mile an hour, what is the top speed of James Bond's Aston Martin? I did mention it in the podcast as well. So, Adam, do you want to show first? All right. I don't know if you can see this, but that's meant to be 180. I've guessed 180 miles an hour. Okay. Oh, I went 147. The top speed of the Aston Martin is 170. Ah, very good. (laughs) But no, Adam, you guessed correctly, pretty much. Okay, so, uh, yeah, that means, Adam, you get to choose our outro song. Uh, What's it going to be for this week? Uh, well, I know actually this is a song that you fancied playing uh, previously after For Your Eyes Only uh, in uh, honour of uh, Haim Topol. So let's have the theme tune from Timothy Dalton's greatest non-Bond film, Queen, with Flash from Flash Gordon. Uh, again, I'm very happy with that. So uh, thanks everyone for joining us for this episode. We'll see you again next week for Timothy Dalton's final appearance in Bond number 16, Licence to Kill that was it for this week in the meantime do take a look at social media give us a like and follow on those pages so thanks everyone for listening i was martin i was adam and i was phil thank you very much
beast lies somewhere in the stump. Choose a passage. No way. Coward.